Hello friends and welcome to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand in this permacrisis age how we're evolving as workers, citizens and consumers. Each episode I tackle a question that I want answered, interviewing leading experts, voices and practitioners along the way to find the answer. Today we are addressing a problem that Elon Musk has defined as a bigger risk to civilization than global warming. No, I am not talking about artificial intelligence, but population collapse and falling birth rates. Why is it that millennials across the world are not having as many children? And where does this fit into the broader geographic and historic trends? And what are the consequences for our future in terms of economic growth, the funding of social services and changing values? With me to discuss these critical issues is demographer, writer and broadcaster Dr Paul Morland. Paul is an Associate Research Fellow at Birkbeck and a senior member at St Anthony's College, Oxford. He is also author of three critically acclaimed books on demographics. In 2019, he published The Human Tide, which set out to explain how population fluctuations had shaped the key moments in history. This was closely followed up in 2022 with Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers, illustrating how a tricky combination of low birth rates, rising life expectancy and declining child mortality will shape the geopolitics, economics and values of the 21st century. Paul, welcome to It's All Relative. Great to see you. Thank you very much. I wondered if we could just begin by setting out the demographic landscape and why you think we're at such a critical juncture in terms of falling birth rates and ageing society. I think so much has been going on that it's a bit confusing to people. So if I could sort of cover the last 2000 years in perhaps uh, 20 seconds or maybe a minute. Um, Essentially, until about 1800, population was a bit of a random walk. Populations grew and then they were not backed by famines and they were not backed by diseases and wars. The carrying capacity of the globe wasn't that great. And it took from Julius Caesar to Queen Victoria for the population to get from a quarter of a billion to a billion. So that's actually over 1800 years, very slow growth. Then something dramatic happens in around 1800, in about Thomas Malthus's day, which is the Industrial Revolution, colonial expansion, railways, then steamships, great advances in agricultural technology, um, such as uh, artificial fertilizers, the Harper-Bosch process, all the way to the Green Revolution. And that means that the potential for the human race to expand grows exponentially. And we do that, first of all, in the UK, then across Europe, then across the world. First of all, people continue to have lots of kids and they actually manage to reduce the death rate, so population growth. And then gradually they bring down their fertility. And that goes in a wave around the world, starting again in the UK, round to Europe. So by, say, 1970, Britain had a below replacement fertility rate. We we got through the big growth period. Our, our mortality was low, but so was our fertility. But at that stage, globally, lots of parts of the world, the population was growing very, very fast. That is now more or less down to just sub-Saharan Africa. And large parts of the world are careering towards pretty high life expectancy and low mortality, but plunging and plunging and plunging again fertility, meaning eventual or even present in some cases population decline. Can you just explain what replacement rate is? Well, it depends where you are in history. If you are a society with a very high infant mortality rate, like almost everywhere a couple of hundred years ago, you need to have about six kids to get two on average through their own fertility. So past that fatal first year and then to being of an age where they can reproduce and then through their whole reproductive life. 
So where most people, almost everyone is living until at least they're 50 and mortality below 50 is very, very low, then actually two is quite adequate. People say 2.1, but it all depends on mortality rates. Providing most people, almost everyone lives beyond 50, two is good enough. Could we just zoom in on Europe? Europe is known as the ageing continent, but it seems like China is careering at a faster pace towards demographic crisis. Is that correct? There's a general pattern, which is the later you enter the demographic transition, the faster it happens. So it took Britain a very long time. It was on the forging ahead of everywhere else, a long time to bring its mortality and its fertility eventually down. And other countries which arrived there later, like Guatemala or Kenya, suddenly hit modernity, have a collapsing mortality rate, take a little while for their fertility to come down, and so have populations that grow much faster. It's sort of supercharged against what happened in Britain. And that's kind of typical when you're looking at the pioneer forging a path and others following behind. The special case of China is that they imposed a one-child policy, as we know, which has been lifted, but also that China has entered modernity incredibly quickly. If you think of the long process of the British Industrial Revolution, China urbanized, educated its population and got its income up very, very rapidly. And all those things are associated with falling mortality rates and falling fertility rate. The one-child policy is, first of all, I think personally, it's a totally unjustified coercive policy. But even if you set that aside, you look about Chinese populations in places like Taiwan, Singapore, or other East Asian communities in Korea, Japan. The fact is that all these places entered modernity very rapidly, industrialized, urbanized, and raised per capita income very fast. Britain and Europe are at a late stage in this process with very low fertility, reasonably long life expectancy, but falling populations now. It's just that China got there very, very fast, as have other countries in East Asia. Could you just explain why is this so important to someone who's not a demographer? Why is demographics important? What's the challenge? Why is this a crisis? Why is Elon Musk tweeting about it? Well, some people ask me what is driven by demography, and I say it's easy to answer what isn't driven by demography. So let's start with power politics. If the United States had not 300 plus million people, but 30 million, it would be a prosperous big Holland, let's say. So you don't get to be a superpower in the modern world. I mean, there are exceptions in history with particular dynamism, technological progress. But on the whole, superpowers, big powers have had big populations. Equally, if Russia had 10 million, not 100 million, it would be different. But if it had the 300 million where it was heading back in the Soviet days, that would also be different. So it determines the size of your economy to an extent because the economy is nothing but per capita GDP times the population. So you get very wealthy countries like Luxembourg that punch no power on the world stage. So it affects your economy. It affects your ability to raise an army. It affects your cultural power very often. Again, you know, very small countries are unlikely to have a big global footprint culturally, a country like India is beginning, you know, something like Bollywood is much more important in our collective consciousness than the Albanian cinema, because there are a lot more Indians and Albanians. So it affects, it affects culture, it affects economics, it affects power. And then within that, aging populations, for example, less likely to be warlike, more likely to have a low crime rate, real challenges for governments in terms of shrinking numbers of taxpayers, rising numbers of elderly people needing pensions and expensive health care. So it affects the government's finance. I think it affects the culture of a country. You know, I mean, the new musical express and nightclubs have shut down in Britain in a way that probably wouldn't have been the case if we had a much larger youth cohort, although who knows what they would be consuming. 
I mean, I love that idea that the decline of enemies down to demographics. Although really it's about the supplacement of hip hop as the main kind of pop culture rather than indie music, guitar based music. When it comes to popular <laughs> culture, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. We all know the example of Japan, diapers for old people outsell, diapers for babies. Yeah. And that's the big example of how poor demographics means sluggish growth, an aging society, particularly when it's combined with low immigration. Is Japan exceptional or are we all turning into Japan? I think Japan is exemplary of a number of things, and it's ahead of the pack, but it's not um, unique. It is just a pioneer of a path we're all going to follow. So the first thing about Japan is that they have a very long life expectancy, whether it's diet or lifestyle. The average Japanese lives to about 85, which is the longest life expectancy more or less in the world. The second thing is, that although they don't have the lowest fertility rate in the world, they've had very low fertility for a very long time. They had a, a kind of very, very short post-war baby boom. And then through the 50s, their fertility rate went down. They've had very, very small families for a long time. So in that respect, they are perhaps an extreme case, but perhaps just a pioneer of where most of the developed world is. And therefore, they've got a very fast aging population. I think the oldest population in the world, the oldest median age, and as a proportion, the highest number of centenarians. So over 70,000 people, over 100, and it will grow faster and faster. What's not exceptional, but different about Japan, say, from a lot of countries in Europe, but similar, say, to Korea or other countries in Asia, is that the Japanese take it for granted that they wish to remain an ethnically homogenous society. For good or ill, they do not think diversity is strength. They do not want mass immigration, even if they could attract it. And there are all sorts of reasons why they might find it difficult to attract high levels of immigration, at least from those countries which have got big, growing young populations in Africa. Because Japan is not familiar and Japanese as a language is not familiar. But even if they could attract large numbers of immigrants, they really don't want to. And they are prepared to forego their dominant position in the world economy and even to some extent in power politics and wane away by effectively having small families and not wanting to integrate immigrants. Most countries in Europe have taken a different path. We also don't want small families, but we do desperately want those workers and we've shipped them in for a very long time. The other thing about Japan is that they are on the forefront of innovation for elder care and robots and, and, and similar sorts of technology for looking after older people. And you can see why that would be the case. If demographics is destiny then, what can we say about sub-Saharan Africa and a growing importance that that region will have in the world because it's just the melting pot of young people in 50 years? So the picture is not completely uniform south of the Sahara. South Africa has actually been managing its fertility quite well for quite a long time. There are some countries in East Africa, like Ethiopia and Kenya, that are successfully reducing it. But even if you reduce it, you have years and years of population growth after you get to replacement level, and they're all a long way from replacement level. Then you've got countries in West Africa with very, very high levels of fertility still. And in all these countries, mortality rates have come down. So they're in that early stage of the demographic transition where the population grows very fast. Sub-Saharan Africans will roughly go from being about 7% of the world's population in 1950 to about 37% in 2100. And they are the last young societies on earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the real demographic dividend, the opportunity comes when you get your fertility rates down, but you've got lots of people in their 20s and 30s busy in the workplace, but not having six or seven of their own. Countries like Nigeria still have to get to that state. When that state hits in places like Kenya and Ethiopia, there is fantastic opportunities for economic growth, but it's not a done deal. It has to be one 
through productivity, through good governance, all the other things. I mean, Syria's not got bad demography, or it hadn't before 2010, when it had a revolution and a civil war. It had a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. It had got its fertility rate down to something reasonable, but it had big political problems. Is that why Germany opened its doors? Yes, Germany would have a shrinking population today if it didn't have immigration. We still have slightly more births than deaths in the UK. In Germany, they have more deaths than births, but they top it up through immigration. So Africa has got an exciting future if it can grasp it. I suspect some countries will be highly successful and, and many won't. You know, I, I'm not a prophet. And I, I think whilst demography sets a lot of the opening conditions effectively for the sorts of challenges countries have, even when the demography is very favourable, that doesn't mean countries are necessarily able to grasp that opportunity. Let's just move into the political response to low birth rates and an ageing society. To what extent are we in danger of not understanding it enough as voters? So many political choices and policies are about fulfilling short-term promises. What role do you think demographics currently plays in politics? And how do you think politicians should articulate it? you put your finger on a big problem, which is a lack of children being born today doesn't have an impact on the workforce for 20 or 30 years. If we had a baby boom now, we wouldn't have any more workers. We would need more nursery nurses. We would need more midwives. We'd need more people building schools. So it actually exacerbates your problem in the short term. And most politicians don't really care about what happens in 20, 30 years, or if they do, if they find that those priorities are very hard to jostle with the other priorities, which are more day to day. So there's the important and there's the urgent. We should have been worrying about this in the 1980s and 1990s. Mrs. Thatcher and Tony Blair and those between them had other things to worry about. So it's very hard for politicians, certainly in democracies with five-year electoral cycles, really to worry about it. So that's one thing to say. The second thing to say is that I am sceptical about how much governments can do. I think governments should do things. And we can go through the sorts of things I think they should be doing. Policies around childcare, policies around house building, policies around tax breaks. We'll come on to that. I wonder if you could just touch on some of the, the pro-natal campaigns that have been enacted across the world. Most of them are awful in terms of their messages and incentives. When governments encourage and have campaigns to get people procreating, it often falls horrendously flat. Why are they getting those messages so wrong? Is it just something that governments shouldn't be involved in? Well, the first thing to say is that governments are very good at getting fertility rates down. So in a lot of the world, they have been trying to reduce fertility rates. And there they've been working with the grain of history as countries have got more developed and richer and more urban and educated. It's falling anywhere. And governments can play an important role in helping people make choices and control their fertility and get contraception available. So I think on the downside, there's plenty that governments can do. On the upside, they're pushing against the flow of history, if you like. If you are a developed, educated, urban, wealthy country, all the correlates are against you. So I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is precisely those countries which are wealthy and educated and urban might not like their politicians telling them how many children to have or stepping on ground which is seen to be sensitive, particularly around elements of feminism and around elements of personal choice. So I think you've got to package it really carefully. I think you've got to make it very clear that it's about allowing people to make their own choices. And, and if that choice is to have fewer children, fine. But if they want children and they can't have them for all sorts of reasons, whether it's IVF or it's the cost of housing, there are things that politicians can do. So what is it that politicians should be doing? I think there are things they should do, and we'll come on to that. But I want to say before that, that I don't think there's much they can do. 
to improve fertility rates. I think it is down to cultures. I think it's down to people's belief system. Yes, the government can do things like more infant support, so child benefits, tax breaks. In a lot of the world, places like Luxembourg, Germany, Cuba, all sorts of countries, they have tax breaks. They can attack nimbyism and free up land for more house building and make property cheaper. They can also try sort of exhortation prizes. I mean, that seems very old fashioned. I talked about a certificate from the Queen on your third birthday in a Sunday Times article, which was met by a certain amount of derision. Your third birthday? A third child. The birth of a third child. child. You get some kind of state recognition. People, People laugh at that. You know, I think it's really down to culture and religion and belief and faith and confidence in the future. I did read an article where you said that you thought there should be a tax on the childless. Do you stand by that or was that just provocation? Well, what I was at, I wasn't saying there should be a tax on the childless to punish the childless. I don't think that. I think that's ridiculous. Does it? But, but having said that, no one says we give child benefit to people. But if you can't have children or you don't want children, and if you do want them, you can't have them, you're not getting the child benefit. How cruel. So I think it is actually practical to say, let's have differential tax rates, whether you're bringing up children or not. And as I said, lots of countries do that, lots of European countries, socialist countries, capitalist countries. So we have recognised through the benefit system, the fact that bringing up children is expensive, we could introduce that through the tax system as well. And that was my point. But of course, the headline was kind of suggesting that I wanted to punish people, which I don't. I believe you on that front. I think it points to a a really important issue that I want to zoom in on here is that demographics, the study of life and death, is essentially a female-driven subject. Women generally outlive men. The ageing society is a predominantly female issue, whether we're talking about caring of elderly or being elderly. And it's obviously women that give birth. When the statistics collide with the personal on, say, an issue of should you tax childless couples, then it creates problem and controversy. So to what extent do you feel like we almost need to feminise how we talk about demographics? Because it feels very statistical and dispassionate There are two things I'd like to say. The first is there is a good feminist argument for pro-fertility. And that has a number of strands. So one is the fact that women are having, in most of the developed world, fewer children than they'd like, according to surveys. Than they'd like, really? Yes. You ask people, how many children do you want? And you compare that to how many children they have. Generally, people have fewer children. Well, I would have liked two to three, but we had one and we found it was expensive and we you know we couldn't afford it or so generally women have fewer children than they want to have so there is an unmet demand the second thing is that societies where women get education but don't get job opportunities and have a more or less patriarchal attitude in the society to working women and women's rights are those where the fertility rates lowest right it's been higher in sweden than in greece for years and years if you respect women you give them an education and then you give them opportunities in the workplace and opportunities to combine that workplace with bringing up children then you actually find they have more children britain's not so bad france is a good case the worst places for fertility rate is where women do get the education but then they're not given the opportunities and that's true of southern europe eastern europe east asia and also one small point where men do more housework it's been found that women have more children I would agree with you that I would welcome more feminists and, and, and more females in this space, having this argument on my side and on other sides. And when we have plenty of women making the case, um, you won't need ageing white males like me making it. I'm quite happy to shut up at the appropriate time. I don't want to hog this space. But I mean, when I wrote The Human Tide, 
no one else had written it and no one has written a book like tomorrow's people so roll on women and push me out of the way i you know as i told you <laughs> i'm entering grandparenthood i'll get my slippers and my pipe and pat the grandchildren on the head we're living in an era now where millennial women are consciously reclassifying even the language around being childless. And there's so much more choice around having children. They're no longer talking about being childless. It's now child free. And I feel like there is a real different conversation happening amongst young women who, let's face it, have been given better options than having kids. And having kids is really expensive and hard. Yes, men have stepped up to the plate, but not enough. And the infrastructure, particularly post-pandemic, in various parts of the world isn't built for women to have both a career and a child. There is a horrible sense that you have to get to a certain point in your career before you can have a child. And there is a lot of paranoia, but also a lot of choice around the issue of having children. Now, isn't it about creating a society and a structure and yes, values that allow for that choice whilst also creating the conditions that make that choice easy or easier? Of course it is. I, I just question how much governments can really do if people are going to continue to say, actually, that third holiday is more important to me, or actually, my next promotion is more important to me. So I'm not condemning people for that. I simply want them to understand the consequences if we as a society don't have enough children for the economy, for people to be there when exactly as you say when we get old not only to look after us but to pay their taxes for our pensions and so on if people understood the social consequences that would help i do think there are pronatal societies there are cultures where people really value their children and it reminds me of a an anecdote i don't know if it's true that i heard of a woman getting onto a bus in jerusalem with her seven children and the bus conductor or the bus driver getting very impatient and saying lady next time you take the bus leave half your children at home and she said, I did. <laughs> Israel's a good example. Tell me how Israel's managed to incentivize. Only about 10% of Israelis are ultra-Orthodox, and they have very, very high fertility, six or seven. The Arabs of Israel, who are perhaps 20%, have gone through the normal process of urbanization, education, smaller family sizes, and they're down to about three now. But within the secular population and the more moderately Orthodox population, there is a real love of children, an urge to have children. Actually, it's not brilliant to have a child in Israel in terms terms of maternity leave or child benefit. It's not fantastic. The government hasn't done all that much. In fact, they used to have a prize for when you'd had so many children in the 50s and they got rid of that. The government doesn't actually do that much. It just is a culture. It's good on IVF. It's very good on IVF. It's very, very good on IVF. Um, but that alone obviously won't save the day because a lot of people are choosing not to have children rather than being biologically constrained. So I think there are two aspects to this. One is it's a society that has always felt itself under threats from its neighbours from its first day to wipe it out and so on. So I think there is that sense of vulnerability. You might argue that there is a post-Holocaust Jewish sense of needing to replenish uh, the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. But the counter example to that is secular Jews in America have one of the lowest fertility rates in America. So I tend to think it's more about the um, geopolitical situation of Israel and a sense that they are in a conflict for their survival. And that conflict has a demographic angle.
that's something I wrote about in my first book, in fact. You talk about the desire to create a sort of postmodern fertility and a pronatal liberalism. Could you just explain what you mean by that and how you think that can come about? If it's not governments and it's not, you know, reducing the cost of childcare and better maternity leave packages, what has to change in order for people to feel like having more children is in line with their values? Cultural change is really hard to make happen. So the question then is, what can each of us do ourselves? What can I do? Well, the first thing that I have done is have three children. Okay, three is not a huge number. I have instilled in them a pronatal uh, ideology, if you like. Wow, how did you do that? By telling them what joy they brought my wife and me. I mean, nothing more than that. Did you have sons or daughters? Two daughters and one son. Ah, okay. We were both in our late 20s, early 30s when we had our children. But it wasn't a conscious let's brainwash them into being pronatal. Because <laughs> we've got the pronatal gene and nothing made us happier than having a family. So it was being an example of that. But the other thing I think as a demographer beyond that, which I can do, is point out to people they should know what the consequences are socially if we don't have more children for the economy, for the state of the nation. And I'm not sure, I, therefore, people are going to read a pronatal book and say, wow, I'm going to do my bit for Britain or Europe or the world or whatever. I don't know. All I can do is do my bit and, as a demographer, point out the consequences. There's lots of things there because there's no doubt, for example, that the formation of the welfare state was a culmination of a value shift, but also shifted values. I wondered if your aspects of thinking about a postmodern fertility, and I love that idea of feminism needing to embrace fertility, whether that is also just about acknowledging what the 21st century life cycle now looks like, because it now looks like a process of delayed adulthood, extreme for both men and women, being triggered perhaps by tertiary education, but also lack of economic opportunities as well combined with looking after the elderly which is you know a ticking time bomb not for old people but for young people and that's going to put more and more people off having kids because they've also got to look after their parents so it is about creating a family-friendly environment creating multi-generational homes creating childcare systems and maternity leave packages and a corporate culture but also a non-corporate working culture for all workers that enable both men and women to be driven to create families, essentially. I think you've put so many points eloquently. And I think the fact is that you are significantly younger than me. You are a woman. And I think you may be better positioned. My kids and, and their forthcoming childbearing and the lives that they've lead, their, their education, their friends, has given me some insight into people in their 20s and 30s. But I appreciate that I'm probably not, as a male in his 50s, in the very best position to say, what are the challenges now? I know what the challenges were when we were having kids in the 90s. My wife was a full-time worker. Housing seemed expensive then. A lot of the things are similar, but I think there is a new culture, a new mindset, and a new generation that is very different. And I don't really want to spend my time preaching mm. to a lot of people who are a generation younger who will simply say, I don't get it. He doesn't get it mm. because I probably don't get it. So, you know, I have to choose my words carefully. I have to, whatever I have to say, I have to be conscious of the limitations of my perspective. But I still think, nevertheless, it is useful to have someone who's got some understanding of demography to say, number one, these are the consequences if you don't 
mend your ways. That sounds very, judgmental. if we don't have more children, <laughs> these are the consequences. And by the way, looking at what's worked in some countries, what hasn't in others, and also saying, actually, governments won't fix this. Governments can help around the margin, but there's nothing the government of Japan can do, I don't think, to get its fertility rate up from 1.2 to 2.1 or Korea. It's actually down to people's choices. Yes, corporate culture, all the things you've talked about. Yes, men taking responsibility. But ultimately, individual cultures and individual nations will die if their people don't want to perpetuate so I can preach from the mountain day and night and just sound like an elderly prophet. But it really is down to people, to the challenges of their generation. And how do you think technology will help, maybe it won't hinder, <laughs> navigate the challenges of an ageing society? That's a great question. One of the pushbacks when I say we need more people is, oh, the robots are coming, the robots are coming. And my response is they're not coming over the hill to save you. We had a new roof put on our house over the summer last year. And I looked at the guys that came in their van, which is a probably a mid 20th century invention, and they had electricity. But otherwise, they were doing the work on that roof pretty much as they'd have done it 50, 60 years ago. There are so many things in our economy and our society that are not obviously going to be replaceable. Labour is not going to be substitutable. Social care? I think that's where the Japanese are working. I just think we're a long way from that stuff. Given how the population of China might almost halve by the time we get to the end of the century, I think we might be waiting for Godot. I mean, again, I'm not an expert on technology, but it does seem to me that AI is very good at certain things and not other things. For example, I understand we are decades from having the possibility of bins being collected by robots. We see bin collection as a pretty basic thing. So I think we are going to need the labour. Talk to any business person or anyone in the public services and we're short of labour. I would not want to rely on technology to save our bacon and think we don't need to have kids because the robots will do it all for us. So that leads me to my final question. You're a business consultant as well as an academic. You know that world very well. How do you think, we've talked a bit about how governments need to address the demographic crisis. How do you think business needs to address it? I think the exciting opportunity here is that there's obviously regulation around paternity leave, maternity leave and so on. And that's all very well. And that's great. What I hope, though, is that businesses, just through market forces, through the desperate need to employ people, when there are fewer and fewer people entering the workforce. We'll have to do things to help women have families, help men support women having families. They'll do that not because of their, um, it kind of goes back to Adam Smith, not because of their philanthropy or their love of humanity or their desire to solve the problems of the world, which they talk about a lot, but I think is largely insincere, but actually because that's the only way they're going to attract the talent. So I'm hoping that shortage of workers will drive it. What do you think about, say, companies such as Facebook offering egg freezing services to employees? Maybe I'm old fashioned in this respect. I'm very sort of pro IVF if people can't have kids. But I don't like the idea of saying to people, don't worry about the natural process. You can do it whenever you like, you know, focus on getting your vice president promotion and then they're free to do it. And if it, people like it, let them go ahead. I'm, I wouldn't ban it. I hope that isn't our way out of this low fertility trap. Yeah. Brilliant. Paul, it just leaves me to thank you for your time and your passionate defence and outlining of, I think, one of the critical issues of our time. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. 
helps me keep this podcast going.